0: Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
1: Thanks so much, Les. do keep that passage open, and uh, on the inside of your white uh, notice sheet, there's a little outline if you want to follow along or take any notes. And I just want to begin by rereading those words of Jesus that come right at the end of the passage we've just heard read. Jesus says in verse 28, "'Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.'" Now, I don't think there can be anyone in this room who doesn't immediately see the appeal of those words. Jesus offers rest to weary and burdened people And I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking, that sounds really nice. I wonder if you recognize yourself in that description of Jesus as being weary and burdened. I guess most of us do to some extent, don't we? After all, as we've been thinking out already this morning, we live in a world which always has the potential to make us feel weary and burdened. We live in a world going through the trials and sadnesses of a global pandemic. We live in a world of injustice and suffering where things are frequently unfair, where crises overtake us just when we're feeling at our most comfortable. Perhaps we find ourselves f- uh, living rather frantic and harried lives in our always on digital culture, where an email from our boss can reach us on the top of a mountain on a Saturday, where we get all our leisure through a screen and we're bombarded with information and entertainment and notifications and memes, and even that becomes exhausting. Or perhaps we're wearied by the simple grind of ordinary life. The baby won't sleep. The kids need picking up from their after-school club. We're feeling just just a bit under the weather. The roof's leaking. Our job's fine, but boring. One or two of our relationships are just a bit tense and stressful. We feel tired and a bit down. As though we're carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. And to all of this, Jesus says, I can give you rest. And so my question uh, to all of us this morning is very simple. Should you take that offer seriously? Sounds good, sounds very nice, but is it credible? Is it believable? For us as 21st century people living in Lancaster, would it be logical and sensible and wise for us to take up Jesus on his offer, to come to him for rest? Or at the very least, would it be wise to investigate it further? Well, my contention this morning and the firm belief of many people in this church is that taking Jesus up on his offer of rest is the wisest, most sensible, most logical decision we can possibly make. That's what I'm going to try and convince you of from this passage this morning. But before we see why it's so wise to take Jesus up on his offer, he wants to tell us, in no uncertain terms, how foolish it is to reject it. That's the theme of the first few verses of the passage we have before us this morning, the promise of judgment for the proud I wonder if you were at all surprised by the strength of the language in the first half of this passage. After all, Jesus claims in the last couple of verses that he is gentle and humble in heart. And yet the first words of the passage might seem to us to be anything but gentle and humble. The headline there is there in verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Before he says this, Jesus has been traveling around this area, the area of Galilee, uh, in the north of the country of Israel, and he's been doing lots of wonderful, mighty works. He's been healing the sick, he's cured a man with leprosy, he's been calming great sea storms, he's been driving out evil spirits, he's even raised a dead girl back to life, all with a simple word or a single touch. He names three Israelite towns in these verses where most of these works have been done: Chorazin and Bethsaida in verse 21, and Capernaum in verse 23. He's been going about these towns day in and day out, doing good to people in spectacular and powerful ways. And there have been many different reactions to that. The first reaction we've seen has been one of wonderment, amazement, the reaction of, How did he do that? the kind of childlike wonder you get when you see a magician perform an incredible illusion and it, it seems impossible and you've no idea how they've pulled it off and yet Jesus is clearly not doing tricks this isn't sleight of hand or misdirection there's nothing fake here he really is healing people and performing wondrous miracles and so the first reaction has been astonishment and amazement that people are baffled and blown away the second reaction we've seen is that the people have had a desire for more it's understandable, isn't it? If someone's going around your town miraculously healing diseases and you or someone you love has a disease, what do you do? Well, you go to him, don't you? And you get your diseases healed. Of course you do. And so we see crowds flocking to Jesus, wanting to be healed, wanting to tap into the power that Jesus is wielding for their own good and the good of those they love. Two totally natural, totally logical, totally understandable reactions. And yet Jesus says here that actually those are not the reactions He's really looking for. There is a third natural, logical, understandable reaction that his miracles were designed to bring about. He says the reaction he's really looking for is repentance. Now, that might be quite an unusual word for us, but in the Bible, repentance is a very simple idea. It means turning your life around, it means realizing that you've been heading in the wrong direction and that you need to make a change and start living your life very differently. And Jesus says that's the reaction. That I've been looking for we might think that's a bit odd but it's bang in line with what Jesus said his whole life was about right at the beginning of his public ministry he said these words it's going to be on the screen it's from Matthew chapter 4 where he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand That's the headline for everything that Jesus was about, and clearly his miracles were meant to fit in that. Everything Jesus was doing was to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? What it means is that the God who created this world is about about to put the world to rights under a new king. Often we can find ourselves craving new leadership, can't we? When things are going really badly wrong, we find ourselves thinking what this business needs, what this organisation needs, what this football club or this country needs is a fresh start and a new management. Trouble is, of course, it doesn't take very long before the new management becomes the old management and things are in a mess again and we demand yet another fresh start, yet another change. And the more times we do that, we begin to think, do you know what, I don't think this is working. Over the course of world history, we see kingdoms rise and fall. We see empires come and go. We see many earnest attempts at making a better world through the kingdoms of earth. But the world remains stubbornly messy and miserable. And this is not just political and global. If we're really honest, it's personal too, isn't it? We like to think that we know best. We like to think that we know what's best for us. And so we think that if we just adopt this new lifestyle, or try this new career, or work on this new relationship, if we sort out our own leadership of our own lives, and this time we're going to make life work, we'll be able to rule our own lives and rule them well. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, the result is that often our personal lives are also messy and miserable. And so when Jesus comes to this world, and he begins to do miraculous works of healing, and compassion, and kindness, and restoration, when he brings order, and grace, and power, and life to his world, what is he doing? Well, he is saying, look, I'm the king that you need. You can chop and change the leaders of the kingdoms of earth all you like, but what you need is the king of heaven, God's own king, the one who actually has the right and the power and the authority to do what we can't, to fix God's world and rule it rightly, to put it back in order again, to flood it with compassion and kindness and healing, to undo the mess and misery of this world. That's what Jesus' miracles were all about. And so, do you see how repentance is the natural and logical response to that? We've been down here trying to rule our own lives, trying to establish little kingdoms of earth, self-confidently proclaiming that "no, we know best, but it's failed. And it's always going to fail because we're trying to live in God's world without reference to the God who made us, and that's always going to end in disaster. And so when Jesus comes, his miracles tell us, look, the king of heaven is here, it's time to abdicate. It's time to dethrone ourselves because it isn't working. It's time to put Jesus on the throne because he can do what we can't. And the sad thing in these verses is that Jesus has come to his own people, a people that was supposed to be worshipping God and listening to him and attuned to him so that they would recognize him when he came, but they've not done the most logical, understandable, reasonable thing. They have not repented Jesus compares the people in the towns of Galilee to ancient cities that were once enemies of God's people, to Tyre and Sidon and to Sodom. Cities that were known for their cruelty, their brutality, their immorality, and crucially, for their pride. Let me just give you just one example of that. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel spoke about Tyre, and here's what he said it's on the screen from Ezekiel chapter 28. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in the pride of your heart you say, I am a god. I sit on the throne of a god in the heart of the seas. But you're a man and not a god, though you think you're as wise as a god. We could multiply examples of that from the Old Testament. These were proud people. They thought they were wise. They thought they were gods. They thought they knew best, and so they went their own way, and they would not acknowledge the god's who made them and that led to their judgments and here's the shock Jesus compares his own people unfavorably to that he says look tyre and sidon we all know about tyre and sidon they were a proud arrogant nation but if they'd seen these miracles they would have repented they would have realized they were wrong they would have had the humility to turn their lives around to abdicate their throne and to accept the rule of the king of heaven If I'd lived in Sodom, they would have repented and God wouldn't have rained down his fiery judgment on them. But I don't live in Sodom, I live in Capernaum. Now you might be thinking this is all very sad and very hard. But we might still be wondering, but what is it about Jesus that means he can say this kind of thing? And what is it about Jesus that means that we ought to listen After all, there have been plenty of people, haven't there, throughout history who have stood up and publicly claimed that we've been living life all wrong and that in order to put things right, we need to listen to them and change their ways, change our ways. Well, in the next section, we're going to see that Jesus is fundamentally different to all the others. We're going to see why everything hinges on Jesus. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It was fun doing that little exercise uh, with Isaac earlier. I think we've got a bit more to learn about each other. I could abuse my power in the pulpit and tell you what was really going on, but I don't know, I'll leave it. Um, it does reveal something that I think we all know about fathers and sons. In general, if we want to know something about a father, one of the best ways to go about it is to ask their son. And that's because the son has an intimacy with the father that no one else can share. When I'm out and about in daily life, when I'm up here preaching or chatting, I hope, with some of you afterwards over coffee, it is possible and sort of necessary for me to put on a bit of a facade, a little bit of an act. And that's largely because, frankly, we live in a society. It would not be appropriate for me to say everything that came into my head or give full vent to all my emotions in the checkout queue at Sainsbury's. That would not be very kind to anybody and not appropriate either. But at home, in the security and intimacy of family life there's not the need to put on the act. Or if I do, I can't keep it up for very long, so we we would drop it anyway. Now, I don't think I'm a completely different person in public and in private, at least I very much hope I'm not. You're very free to ask my children afterwards what what they think, if you like. And if you do, you'll probably get uh, from my children a truer, fuller picture of who I really am. They see me in the morning when I've just got out of bed. Oh, I've just given that one away, haven't I? I was out of bed before they were. Never mind, too late, too late. Uh, They see me when I'm frustrated and tired. They see me when I'm acting in ways that I just wouldn't in a polite society. They've seen me dancing around the kitchen singing into a cucumber. And if you came round for a cup of tea, I probably wouldn't do that. They know me best. And, And similarly, I know them better than others do. I can tell you more about my children than their teachers can, for example. Occasionally, uh, we've had comments from our children's teachers along the lines of, oh, they're very quiet and sensible, aren't they? And we think, you have no idea, (laughs) because you don't know them very well yet. And Jesus is making a very similar point here about his relationship with God. Now, in one sense, it's a very straightforward point, isn't it? Fathers and sons know each other. But on Jesus' lips, it's absolutely mind blowing. Fun fact this is the first time in the whole Bible that an individual person ever refers to God as their own personal father. Jesus is laying claim to an intimacy with God which is unparalleled in Jewish religion or indeed any religion. You see, the people of Israel had seen some of the mighty works of God, they'd heard his powerful words, and so they could rightly say that in one sense they knew God. But look at verse 27, Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son. You may know God, but you don't know him like I know him. You may know about him, but only Jesus, the Son, knows God as intimately as a son with his father at home. And so only Jesus has the ability to really tell you what God really is like. To let you in unto that relationship. As he says in verse 27, he alone has the right to choose who he's going to reveal the Father to. And Jesus says here that there are those who are not let into that relationship, who cannot or will not see what God is like. Jesus says in verse 25 that God his Father has hidden these things from the wise and the learned. We've got to be clear here. Very clearly, Jesus is not against wisdom and learning per se. In verse 19, he said that he himself has acted with wisdom. And in verse 29, he calls people to learn from him. Jesus is not against education. But we can see what the problem is with the wise and the learned by comparison with who he has let into the relationship, who he has revealed the father to. He praises God that he has revealed these things, uh, verse 25, to little children. So what is so commendable about little children? Well, just think about it in comparison with the pride and the arrogance we've just been hearing about. Little children, very little children, infants are models of humility because they are utterly dependent on their parents, aren't they? They look to their parents for everything, for food, for shelter, for knowledge, for everything when they're hungry Little children don't think, right, so what I'll do is I'll go and get myself a job and earn some money, and then I'll be able to go to McDonald's. They just don't even know that's an option. They just ask their parents. That's all they're capable of, and they know it. When they don't know something, they don't sort of sit and ponder seriously or go and find an encyclopedia from the shelf. No, they just ask. They have to ask because they know that they don't know very much. Parents all know the deep joy of a small child asking why. And then when we give an answer, asking us why, it's a a little annoying. But it usually comes from a position of humility. They ask why, because they don't know. And they know they don't know. And they don't pretend they don't know. And weirdly enough, they assume you do know. (laughs) And that is the danger for wise and learned and educated people. You see, the truly, truly wise person knows they're not as wise as they should be. The truly educated person knows that they don't know very much and there's a lot to learn, but a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing because it can make you very proud very quickly. It actually happens depressingly soon in childhood, doesn't it? It doesn't actually take very long for a child to turn from someone who knows they know nothing to someone who thinks they know everything. And it can cause real problems. Let me give you a trivial example not that long ago i was trying to give one of our children and i genuinely can't remember which one so i'm not trying to embarrass them i was trying to give them a piece of fudge and i kept saying to them you'll like this it's it's not healthy or anything i'm not trying to feed you broccoli it's just sugar you will like it eat this fudge and they refused point blank I don't want it. No, I've had it before. I've had it before. I don't like it. They had not had it before. I, I don't like it. I don't want it. And I would plead with them, it's so good. It's so tasty. It's not going to do you any good. It's just sugar. i say, no, I don't like it. I don't want it. I've had it before. I don't want it. And like every parent, there comes a point where you just stop offering, don't you? You say, okay, I've tried. I've tried to offer you this thing which I know would be so good for you, but you've refused. And so now I'm going to stop offering and I'm really sad for you because you're going to miss out. It doesn't really matter with a piece of fudge. But it's heartbreaking when the child is a bit older and it's something more serious. And you know as a parent that you're offering something really good and really wise. And they refuse and go their own way because they think they know better. So I hope you're beginning to see, actually, that there is actually no contradiction between the judgment Jesus pronounces and his insistence that he's gentle and humble Because when Jesus pronounces his judgment on the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, he's not doing it gleefully or maliciously, but sadly and brokenheartedly because he's offered them something good, something wonderful. He's offered them a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, his rule where the world will be made whole once more. And yet because they thought they knew best, like stubborn children wanting to establish their own kingdoms of earth, they would not repent. And so now they will miss out. And that's because of what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. At a very fundamental level, everything, everything hinges on Jesus. God the Father has put the fate of the whole world and every person in it into the hands of his Son, Jesus Christ. Everything hinges on him. And so there is tremendous foolishness in deciding that we know better than Jesus. And I do want to gently ask you this morning, is there the possibility that you might have done this with Jesus? Perhaps you've read some of the Gospels when you were a child at school, or you've heard the sort of broad brushstroke ideas of what Christianity is all about, and you've decided, perhaps you haven't even realized that you've done this, but you've sort of decided that it's not for you. Well, if that's you this morning, I wonder if you would have the humility to at least consider whether you might have made a mistake. Because even if you're not yet convinced that what Jesus says here is true, even the most cursory reading of the Gospels will tell you that at the very least Jesus is worth paying deep attention to. Here is a man of extraordinary compassion and deep wisdom and incredible power. If you've never really read the Bible as an adult, if you've never really taken Jesus seriously, then I will hope you consider doing what Charlotte did and reading the word one-to-one with someone because it would be an act of tremendous folly to say to the man who you can read about in these pages, do you know what? I don't really think you have anything to teach me. I don't think you have anything to offer. In fact, the opposite is true. Everything has been given to Jesus. And for those who have the humility, like little children, to know that we don't know very much, everything is promised. And that gives us the appropriate context to now look at the offer of Jesus again. That's our final section the promise of rest for the humble. Let me read it once more from verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus describes his very heart here, the very sort of core of who he is, as gentle And humble. And again, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that. You'll see his compassion and his care for even the outcasts of society, yes, and even his humility. That might seem like a strange thing to say. After all, he's just claimed to be the king of heaven, the one with total authority over this world given to him by the God who made this world. But it's true. In a moment, I'll tell you about the most humble thing Jesus ever did. But read the Gospels And see him bend down in front of beggars and children and widows and orphans and say, how can I help you? And his claim to gentleness and humility ring true. And here he gently and humbly offers rest to the weary and burdened. And so we need to ask, why are we weary? Why are we burdened? I want to suggest that one of the big reasons is what we've seen already, that we have been trying and failing To fix our world and to fix our lives, we have tried and failed to make ourselves better people. We have tried and failed to build the kingdom of earth, and the mess and misery that is the result makes us weary and makes us burdened. We feel there will never be an end to the sadness and the hardship. We feel that injustice is just going to go on forever. And perhaps also we feel the weight of our own guilt. We know that we've made a mess of our lives and our relationships and we've hurt other people. And perhaps we know deep down that we've failed to obey the God who made us as well. And the guilt makes us weary, makes us burdened, makes us tired. And we think there's no hope. But Jesus says here, there is hope. There is another way. There is still a way for the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and even the people of Lancaster to find rest their souls and that is to come to him to repent of trying to do things our own way and to come to jesus to as he says in verse 29 to learn from him what do you learn when you start to learn from jesus learning from jesus doesn't just mean learning lessons from him it means learning to be like him learning to be like the son who is an intimate relationship with the Father, taking on, if you like, the family likeness. And what is Jesus like? He is gentle and humble in heart. Repentance is turning from pride and embracing Jesus-like humility. Embracing the fact that I do not know anything and I need someone to teach me. That I cannot fix myself or this world and I need someone to save me. That I cannot do enough good works to cancel out my bad works and I need someone to forgive me. And here's the crucial thing Jesus doesn't say, Come to me and learn from me, and I will teach you how to be good enough for my Father. He doesn't say, Come to me and learn from me, and at the end of the course, once you've passed the exam, you'll have earned your place in the kingdom of heaven. No, he says, Come to me and learn from me. Start the process of learning to be like Jesus, of being his disciple. A disciple just means a learner, someone who's learning from someone. Come to me and start that process, and I'll give you rest. Here is the great difference between Jesus and all the other religions of this world, including the religious leaders of his own day. You see, there were a group of people at this time who were teaching that it was possible to be good enough for God without Jesus, that nothing really hinged on Jesus, didn't need him, that if you just obeyed the rules, just did the right thing, and did the religious things, and followed God's law, God will be pleased with you and you would earn your place in the kingdom of heaven. But look on the screen about what Jesus says of such people later in Matthew. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You see, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and other religions and philosophies and belief systems of this world will say to you, do this thing, learn this secret, obey these rules, and eventually you will earn rest for yourself. We'll see in next week's uh, passage. Come back next week to see how these teach of the law turn even something which was meant to be a restful activity into a burden, a yoke that is something that you put on the back of oxen to make them obey you and make them serve you a stressful, wearying law but look at what Jesus says in verse 28 my yoke is easy and my burden is light Jesus says that when you repent and turn around when you stop trying to build the kingdom of earth and bow the knee to the king of heaven that although in one sense you are being yoked to Jesus you're being bound to him in service because he's the king it's the opposite of a burden it's a burden which removes burdens. It's a yoke which makes the load lighter. One author puts it like this, that the yoke which Jesus offers to put round our shoulders is the equivalent of a life ring thrown out to a man drowning in the ocean. I wonder if you can just imagine that with me. Imagine a man drowning in the ocean. and You find the life ring and you throw it out and he pushes it away. And he says, What are you trying to do to me? That thing looks heavy. Don't you know anything? I don't want something to go on my shoulders right now. That's going to weigh me down. It's going to drag me under. That's the last thing I need. But you would think such a man to be a proud and arrogant fool. But that's what we do with Jesus sometimes we push him away because we don't want a king. We don't want to repent and listen to him. We think we know best and we want to do things our way. But as we try to rule our own lives and fix our own lives and sort ourselves out and sort our world out with Jesus and perhaps without Jesus and perhaps sort out our relationship with God without Jesus, we find that we have a millstone around our necks dragging us to the bottom of the ocean. Yet when we let go of our attempts to rule ourselves and submit to the yoke of King Jesus and put it on our shoulders, we find that it's actually a life belt. We find it saves us and brings us rest. I hope you're wondering, what does that rest actually mean? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is this rest that Jesus offers? Is it a life free of all difficulty? By all means, speak to any Christian person here this morning and ask them, so now you're a Christian, is your life easy now and stress-free? Is your work a joy? Is your parenting a breeze? Are you completely physically and mentally well? And they'll reply, no, (laughs) no, not at all. So how can it be true that Jesus can offer rest when Christians still struggle in all the same ways as everyone else? Well, that brings us to the most humble thing Jesus ever did. As you read on in Matthew's Gospel, you'll read Jesus start talking about heaven as a great feast, a great banquet, a great enjoyable, satisfying, all-you-can-eat buffet. And he starts talking about who's invited to the feast and who's not invited, who's going to get in and who isn't. And then just before he dies, he invites his disciples to a feast. He has a final meal with them the night before he dies. And he says this again on the screen. While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins I tell you I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom in this final act of humility, Jesus gives his very life for others. He takes upon himself the very judgment that he has pronounced on proud and arrogant people like us. He takes on the burden of our guilt like a millstone and it drags him down to his death. He pours out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. This is the true rest that Jesus offers This is the gift that he longs to give us. This is the life ring thrown to drowning people, the offer of forgiveness of sins, the offer of invitation into the intimate family relationship of father and son to their joyful family meal, which will last forever. Not earned or worked for, but given as a gift. Jesus said he is gentle and humble, and he came to do the gentlest and humblest thing anyone has ever done, To die in the place of people like you and me, facing our judgment for us, all to offer us forgiveness of sins as a free gift to those humble enough to accept it. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, I wonder what you will now do with that offer. Perhaps you know this morning that's something you need to look into further and take it seriously. That's you, as Danny said earlier, come next Sunday. Uh, fill in one of those forms, ask to read the word word one-to-one with someone, stick around and ask any questions you like here today. But perhaps you know that actually this offer is for you. You're weary and burdened, perhaps because you've trying to, been trying to build your own kingdom on earth and it isn't working. Perhaps you've been, because you've been trying to be good enough for God without Jesus and it's just led to despair. If that's you, I'm going to lead us in the prayer that's on the bottom of this sheet. Uh, do have a quick look at that now. If you want to pray that along with me, please do so quietly in your own mind. And if it's the first time you've prayed a prayer like this, then please let someone know. I'll just give you a moment to read it over, and then I'll pray. Father in heaven, I'm sorry that I've been proudly trying to build my own kingdom on earth. I'm weary and burdened, and I know that I need your son Jesus, the King of heaven. Thank you that he was gentle and humble enough to die in my place, offering me rest by forgiving my sins. Please help me come to Jesus and learn from him now and for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.